Welcome, and let's first talk compliance. I'm Catherine Short, Manager of Virtual Education at First Healthcare Compliance. Thanks for tuning in. This show is brought to you by First Healthcare Compliance as part of our commitment to provide high-quality, complimentary educational resources. We help create confidence among compliance professionals throughout the United States. Please show your support by taking a moment to provide a review on Google, Facebook, or iTunes. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. On today's episode, we are speaking with Kathleen W. McNicholas, MD, JD, CHC, CCEP, Consultant and Patient Advocate with Medical Legal Patient Advocacy, Inc., on the topic of medical error, candor, and patient advocacy. We will review medical error and provide an approach to harmed patients. The candor program of communication and optimal resolution will be explained. Candor is a well-established program and has been successfully adopted by many medical centers. With candor in place, patients may benefit from the use of the principles and the help of a board-certified patient advocate. Before we begin, I would like to mention at First Healthcare Compliance, we strive to serve as a trusted resource for compliance professionals, and every month we celebrate their hard work and dedication with our Compliance Super Ninja recognition. For this episode, we're spotlighting Super Ninja Julie Garcia, Business Office Manager at Coastal Vascular Center. Julie says Coastal Vascular Center has three office locations, and yet the whole group works as a team. They all respond well to the compliance updates and changes. I am fortunate to have such a close-knit, caring group of professionals to work with every day. Congratulations, Julie. Our team is honored to have the privilege of working with you. So hello, Kathleen. Thank you so much for joining me today on First Talk Compliance. Thank you, Catherine. It's a great pleasure. So what skill set is required to be a board-certified patient advocate? We have to have real competence proven competence in our field, in mind with surgery, relationships to get us credibility. It also is important to have humility. With my career and my background, uh, I got a healthy dose of humility, feel that I'm fairly competent to, uh, to do that. But it's, it's an ethical relationship, and it's, it's a pleasure for me to be able to extend my career of service what made you become a board-certified patient advocate? That's a very interesting background story. I had a very special friend. Uh, I was part of his family, essentially, and he had a very bad outcome due to a medical error. And I was involved in that in the late 1990s and saw the anguish and the suffering that the family went through. And a little quote that I've used from Rene LaRiche is, Every surgeon has a small cemetery, and they go there frequently to pray. And I think that 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 really was the impetus in my case to a lot of my changes in my career and transitions. When I saw that happen, I I thought that there had to be a way, a better way. And, And I've subsequently spent a lot of time in that cemetery thinking about what we could do differently that to make M's um. Uh, death not in vain and to make it really a a pivotal 
point in at least my career, it was happening at the same time that the medical errors were becoming medical liability was becoming a big issue. And I just kind of got caught, thankfully, in a great wave. And uh, when my career as a cardiac surgeon ended, I continued as a surgeon, but I just didn't operate, which is an unusual surgeon. But uh, I then was able to do patient safety and leadership and uh, work in performance improvement at an excellent institution and learned a lot about patient safety, risk management. I had spent some time uh, in my transition. I found out I was pretty boring, didn't have a hobby and thought I'd go to law school. A couple other things happened to me, which I kind of put in the background, but law school was pretty eventful and uh, not because of my experience in law, but I had a myocardial infarction in uh, 2002, followed by stents. 2003, I had a coronary artery bypass grafting. I retired from cardiac surgery in 2008. And this experience with my friend's son and my friend really prompted me to become more involved in patient safety. I'd also met Tim McDonald, who started the CANDOR, C-A-N-D-O-R, program in the University of Illinois. And it all kind of just came together. And when I saw something called board certification in patient advocacy, I thought that was perfect. I, I really enjoy uh, patient work. I still enjoy patients. This next question has to do with CANDOR, which is a all capitalized CANDOR. Could you explain to our listeners what the program of CANDOR is and then what concepts support CANDOR in healthcare and who has ownership with this? CANDOR is an acronym, the all caps CANDOR for communication and A and D, optimal OR, OPTO, and then R resolution. This is a process that was started in the uh, early 2000s. It was led by Richard Boothman at the University of Michigan and Tim McDonald from Chicago. AHRQ threw a big grant in their way to, to pilot this program and to make a toolkit so we could share. And the important thing in medicine is you don't have to do everything yourself that other people can do some things and form a toolkit, infections, line sepsis. A toolkit was made and you, you do things uniformly. So CANDOR was instituted and CANDOR is a, a amazingly good process in a response to harm caused by medical error. So this has to be recognized, reported, a really intense review, and then after a review uh, and a consensus decides that this is appropriate, there was harm caused by medical error, resolution comes about. Resolution can be monetary. It can be, of course, waiving the fees because you don't want to charge for useless service, and certainly medical error would be considered useless service, so you don't want to go down that uh, rabbit hole. So you want to look at that and, and hold the bills, hold future bills. And then some families want to be part of the process. And that in the University of Illinois has, has been worked into it. And they, they have a wonderful patient uh, advocacy group that goes with them. It is difficult. It's a heavy lift. It's a big process. It works well when it works well. It's uh, I, I have what I have done is taken the large caps and made them small caps just to get the usual word candor. And the whole process is geared towards finding resolution for families and finding it in a timely fashion. You don't want to go through a four-year legal process, which is the, is the alternative. 
you can all, you know, you have if you if you can't accept and you don't understand and you need to find information, you go to the next best source, which is the legal process. You get experts, and then you have a battle of experts, and then if you get a settlement, well, that's pretty disappointing too, because that's that's a shallow victory. Okay, so how are ethics of medicine, patient safety, and patient advocacy aligned? The ethics of medicine are the basic ethics. Do good, and that we learned in kindergarten and before. Do no evil. Do no harm. Then justice. Be fair. And the other thing is uh, uh, autonomy. Treat patients with respect. Respect their decisions. Respect their positions. Respect where they are, their status. That's pretty easy. And that's sort of and then medical you know, practice came along and we, we kind of amplified them and changed them. Patient safety ethics are, are also very, very interesting. And I think focus on something that I focused a lot on and was able to develop programs and work around things. It's pretty intuitive, but it's also pretty powerful that you have to have vigilance. I had a brief career as a pilot. And I won't say it was very successful. I didn't crash, but I came close. And I did have a problem finding airports. But you have to be vigilant. You have to look out for what could happen. Mindfulness is something I wish I had a little more of. And we all have to kind of block out the other things and be mindful. Compliance. I mean, I thought we were compliant just because we were doing well and doing things the way we thought was correct. And there was a whole body of information there of law and compliance. But compliance is key to making people, making the ship run and have a commonality. And then the biggest part, really, and the part that appealed to me is humility. Humility is really difficult. I should say resilience, too, but nobody did tack that on officially because we really do come and go with our patients. People ask me how I remember my patients, and I ask them how you could forget them. The most important thing in, in candor is it's communication and Optimal resolution, therefore the acronym C-A-N-D-O-R. Can you describe in four words the basic skills required for patient advocacy? You have to have empathy of the uh, of the patients and the patients' families. I had my own little experience on the opposite side of the sternal retractor, and I uh, when I had my bypass surgery, and that's that's something that people have. Some people have naturally, some people acquire. And some people have it amplified. You have to have trust. If you can't trust someone, you can't work with them. And you, So I think trust is a very important thing to have and to have the ability to develop and to, to, to nurture. You have to have credibility. You've got to have been there. You've got to have walked in the shoes. And, and I tried to arm myself pretty well. I considered law a hobby, but that was five years of intense study. And as I told everybody in the uh, that asked me what I did, I told them I was a technician. And when they told me what hard days I had, well, did, I said, well, did anyone die? And they said, no. I said, you had a good day. And then humility. And and I'm not the most humble person in the world, though I certainly should be. And I try to be. And it, it should come naturally. But I think that's an important quality. So I would say, in short, it would be empathy, trust, credibility and humility. And integrity would would go in there, too. You have to be a solid person and on solid ground. Right. I agree. I agree. So you pursued a legal um, education. So what impact 
did your career in medicine have on you pursuing a legal education? It was would be very difficult, I could imagine, if I lived long enough to practice medicine for, at the intensity that I did. So I was looking for a hobby. So I uh, went to law school thinking it would be a casual experience. It was anything but. So I had uh, to go to law school and, and actually finish it. And uh, I loved the, the body of knowledge I got. I did not become a lawyer. I do not want to become a lawyer. I do not want to practice law. But I love the theory and I loved uh, the way lawyers think. Well, what impact did your experience with law have on your career then as a patient advocate? My experience in law was really an academic experience. It was it was important for me to be with people who were pursuing that line of work and to see how they think and to, to read the cases, to see how they were judged, to critique them, to apply my knowledge. There were a couple of really pivotal cases that one I was involved with. Uh, uh, not uh, it was not a malpractice, but it was a court judgment on a, Jeho- on a Christian science uh, child. It's a life of service. I really want to be useful. And I'm uh, trying to is my hardest to continue appreciate the fact that my health had declined and I have an excellent cardiologist that rescued me. So I've got a, a new lease on life that I'm trying to uh, enjoy and I am enjoying. Wonderful. Wonderful. So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to First Talk Compliance brought to you by First Healthcare Compliance as part of our commitment to provide high quality complementary educational resources. We help create confidence among compliance professionals throughout the United States. My guest today is Kathleen W. McNicholas, MD, JD, CHC, CCEP, consultant and patient advocate with Medical Legal Patient Advocacy, Inc., on the topic of medical error, candor, and patient advocacy. Please show your support by taking a few minutes to provide a review of First Healthcare Compliance on Google or Facebook. You can also follow us on other social media. So Kathleen, what was your contribution to patient safety? I co-led the candor program at a major local institution, which is an outstanding institution. And I think that that has to be the highlight. I also worked on just culture, which is a new way of approaching uh, error and dealing with individuals and the choices they make. I had a lot of interest in in working with people after events, because I think that's the hardest time for them. And that's the time when they really lose confidence in themselves and the suffering is unbearable. So I set up a program of post event debriefs. Uh, which we held at variable times during the day as soon as we could after the event. And with the support of an absolutely tremendous patient safety department, we could do this. We'd invite all people that were involved in the event that we that we knew of. And it, it was really a very diverse group of people. And people would know that they, they alone were not responsible, which at the beginning they all thought they were. And this was not a punitive. You can't. In the old days, we had a very simple system. It was ABC, assess, blame and crucify. This is the polar opposite of that, where you take the wisdom of the group and you support them. And the fact that they're supportive, I think, makes them realize that they are really valued professionals. If they see a safety problem, they will be the ones that report it. The reporting system has outstanding uh, near misses, good catches, crash events, and, and try to learn from them. But 
you know, I really enjoy looking at, at problems and seeing how people fix it and getting other people's perspectives. I hope that answered your question. Yes, yes. Okay, um, I have a question about something called human factors, capital H, capital F. So can you explain what, what that means, human factors, and then what has been the contribution of human factors to patient safety? I, I wouldn't even begin to uh, assess the contribution. It is huge. And when you're blessed, as the, the institution where I worked had a value institute, and they had a whole section of people who were experts in human factors, they would come and look at a problem and say, what, what made it so simple for that accident to happen? What made it so not avoidable that you fall into that trap? How could, you know, how could we improve this? How could we change it? Their minds, it was a psychology, but it was looking, it goes back to Deming and trying to figure out, you know, why bad things happen. When you get a group of people and somebody that's a specialist in human factors, they can cut through what you're all looking at and show you what the error, what, what the defect was or what the potential harm was that was laying there behind the scenes that allowed this to happen. How the, the, the drain got stuffed, stuffed up and wouldn't work. How the door to the bathroom had a handle that if you pushed it, it would just release and you would, you could have falls. We looked at falls. We looked at all major events and we could see how these things happened. The labeling, the storage, the tall man letter labeling. There were so many fantastic things. So this group of people is sitting there trying to help us to make things harder to make an error and easier to do it right. So I think that that is a talent and that's a that's a science that has incredible application. And it's one that you don't think of uh, normally. You know, when I'd always insist that we get somebody from human factors, people would think that was a little silly and a little out of the field. Why could they help? But they could help because they could cut through. They have a different way of thinking and a different way of looking. And it's all of us, how we look at the problem and how we come up with solutions or improvements. So human factors is how humans are influencing errors. You know, something happened by accident and this seems to be happening over and over again because because humans are doing the same thing over and over again. And, and how can we fix this? That kind of thing. It's a latent defect that makes it easy to do it wrong. We want to put a layer of, of, of prevention. And if somebody notices a small defect in what we're doing, how we're thinking, and it gets people in the, in the operating room to announce their names, to say who they are. They speak. You hear their voice. So if something goes wrong, they could speak up and say, excuse me, I want to double check this or I have a question that's listened to. And that comes from aviation. And the, the readbacks, there's so many things that human factors professionals can tell us. If you put this in your system, you will improve the performance. It's small things, but then you get to communicate it. And you again, you amplify, you magnify the value of patient safety experts. And the meetings we have with the people who have really devoted a lot of their time and education to getting it right uh, is just overwhelmingly beneficial. It's great. It, I'm enthusiastic about it because it's it's how we're getting to the safety culture. And it is a culture of safety. You have to understand that an error could be catastrophic. Therefore, the vigilance, therefore, the mindfulness, therefore, the compliance. Therefore, they be humble 
know and admit to yourself, I can make an error. If it's going to happen one out of a thousand times, it's going to happen to someone. Someone's going to be that one out of a thousand. And you want to prevent that. Okay, so here is another difficult question. Then what culture is the most important in healthcare? Well, that's pretty easy. It's the culture of safety, safety, which it, which is the umbrella culture. All the rest are, 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 are molded in and become part of the fabric of the patient safety. So if you look at it as a big quilt, the just culture, the candor program, the care for the caregiver program, if you find a need, you plug it up and you plug it up safely and it's under the rubric of the culture of safety. So I think a hospital that has a great culture of safety is a great hospital. Patients are going to understand when you're doing so much to do things so well. Well, well, that leads into another question that I had then. Is candor adopted universally? And if it's not, uh, why is that? It, 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 it can't be because of the intensity. You really need a, a powerful culture of safety and you need the support group for that. And that's a patient safety department or section or, or some group within the hospital. You have to have attorneys within the hospital and outside the hospital in the community who, who agree to this. And you don't just say it's, it's kerfluffin, uh, which, you know, we, we had several other terms people threw around. But you have to get the buy-in. And people are really, I mean, the industry is important, but the people are more important Kathleen, what about care for the caregiver? Do you need a candor program to provide care for caregivers? I know that there's a lot of need for the caregiver as well. No, you do not. The silent victim is no, no longer the silent victim. I think hospitals and everyone have recognized that even talking about my friend, and when he had an echocardiogram, when he had an EKG, everybody that touched him that knows the outcome is is overwhelmed with grief. So I think that everybody's out there and everybody's seeking, you know, nobody goes and wants to admit that they're weak or they're non-professional. Well, professionals are the ones that need care and the professionals are the ones that are giving care. So AHRQ, the same, same group that has candor and the care for the caregiver is another program with another toolkit but it's a part that is really beneficial to move in right away and talk with the group, find out who was affected and open yourself up and have professional people and peers, their colleagues, that can go in and find out how the person's doing and, and provide more care, suggest or recommend more care if it's necessary. That, that syndrome of burnout, you know, this is human beings with little parts of their souls being removed and affect it. You cannot shake it off. You do not take off your ID tag and become a different person when you go home. You carry it with you. Everybody has this little area of their soul, and we have to make sure it's nurtured, it's healed, and it just happened together, and we have to tell them. We have to look at it as far as the just culture goes and assure them that we're humans. Things happen, but we have to take care of them because they're absolutely totally valuable to the institution and their value has to be cared for and has to be nurtured. Well, Kathleen, I think we're just about out of time, but I wanted to ask you, do you have some other thoughts or things that you wanted to leave with us today? Uh, yes. You know, you could, we're, we're all evolving. I think I've evolved and I think that 
we all have to be open and keep, you know, and, and just look for opportunity and look to be useful. I think for patients that there's always somebody out there. And when they're searching, a patient advocate is a wonderful person to search for. And I've been a patient advocate, as I said, all my life. And my it's kind of silly now. I have a nonprofit because I really can't see you know, burdening people with uh, uh, anything more when they're already so, so stressed. And so, uh, you know, it's really so difficult, but they need to speak and they need to speak with a person and they need to speak with their families. And the communication thing is uh, is really is really the key. If you could if you could promote that and make family peace, I tell you the suffering I just can only imagine my friends went through with the loss of a beautiful, beautiful son. It's overwhelming and it it it, it really fills that cemetery. And uh, you know, there are little plots around it where you see them all sitting and grieving and they're they're still grieving to this day. So you really want to find peace and resolution. And uh, that's where I've kind of moved to in my life from the aggressive cardiac surgeon to um, the patient advocate in a different form, just a surgeon who doesn't operate anymore, except in my dreams. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Kathleen. Thank you so much for coming on to First Talk Compliance today. Very, very much appreciate it. Thank you, Catherine. It really was a privilege and a uh, to display some of my passion towards this field. And again, I should thank my colleagues who uh, work very hard with me and, uh, but uh, yeah, to make, make our institutions safe, safer and really make them places I have tremendous pride in and uh, want to maintain that pride. We're grateful to you. So thank you so much. And thanks to our audience for tuning in to First Talk Compliance. You can learn more about our show on the programs page on healthcarenowradio.com and to lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at FirstHCC or hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. You can also email me at Katherine Short at FirstHCC.com. I'm Katherine Short of First Healthcare Compliance. Remember... Compliance is the key to achieving peace of mind.